Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello everyone, I'm here with Ron Peck, an attorney and Executive Vice President and General Counsel with the FIA Group. Welcome. Thank, thank you. For, you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast today. You bet. We're going to be talking today about subrogation and third-party recovery. So, I'm told that you make a topic that some people wouldn't think is the most interesting in the world. Interesting and lively. Is wait, that wait, wait, stop. You're telling me that people don't think <laughs> subrogation is the most interesting topic already? Yeah, that's, that, you know what? That's some people just, you know. I thought it was a layup. I didn't I think there was anything to it. All right, fair <laughs> enough. Now I know. I'm going to have to change my Thanksgiving dinner conversation. There you go. All right. Thank you. Um, actually, everyone that I've talked about you two has spoken very, very, very highly of you. Um, so again, thank you very much. So You've been talking talk- to my mom? Yeah, I have. All right. And I, I had to get her phone number, and, and <laughs> I had to do that on the sly, just in, in preparation for this interview. Hey, she's looking for as many friends as she can make. So that's right. Yeah. That's right. So um, let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, we know we have lots of accidents, uh, motor vehicle accidents particularly. They cost health plans billions of dollars. Um, and we want to talk a little bit about reimbursement provisions and the right to recover uh, benefits, pay, benefit payments and and uh, when you receive money from a third party and how complicated that is, and we just want, kind of want to break this down a little bit for the average person that may not understand this. Um, so tell me a little bit about this and why is it so important that you have good recovery provisions in your health plan? Sure. Start with the basics. Sure. So, you know, 30,000 level view. I would be driving in the car with, speaking of my mom, right? My parents, yeah. back when I was a kid, we're at the mall, right. and we're headed for an open space, and somebody goes in and they take the space at that last second. You know the deal, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, somebody in the car inevitably says, ah, that should be illegal. They should go to prison for that, right? And the reason I tell you this story is because there's a big difference between what's fair and what seems just uh-huh. and equitable. Uh-huh and what's actually legal. Right. And when you think about somebody who, let's say they have a self-funded health benefit plan, Mm -hmm. okay, and the employee, their colleagues, their coworkers, the employer, their families, they're all contributing money into this health plan, right? And they have a car accident. And there's a third party that is financially responsible. Okay, so they caused the accident, they have insurance, that insurance is there to pay for injuries arising from this car accident. Right. And yet, because this person was rushed to the ER, you know, and they give them their health benefit plan card, their insurance card, right? That ER, that hospital, they go and they file a claim with the health plan. Mm-hmm. And that health plan, you know, despite what maybe you sometimes hear in the media, actually cares about the employee and they go and they pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Only to find out later that this injury was caused by a car accident, right? right? And that there's this, like I said, money out there that's literally meant to pay for this thing. (laughs) Yes. You would seem, you know, commonsensically that it should be as easy as picking up the phone and being, oh, hey, man, I paid the bill, my mistake, you mind reimbursing me? 
just going to dinner with a friend, you know, hey, I'll cover you, mm -hmm. you hit me back next time, right? Right. And yet, just because that's fair and equitable right. doesn't mean it's legal. Right. And the law, while it, it's very supportive of this practice of coordinating benefits, of recovering money from third parties, uh -huh. it's only going to be enforceable if very specific boxes are checked. Okay. And it's a long list. Yes. And it's very complicated. Yes. And in other words, they've made it very difficult to actually go to an auto insurance carrier and say, hey, auto insurance, there was an auto accident. Right. Reimburse me. Right. If you haven't taken the right steps, you won't be able to do that. And the last thing to note is that plan member, the one who was injured, they're almost like a bridge, if you think about it, right? They're a bridge between their health plan and the third party that injured them. Mm -hmm. And as a result, all of your rights as a health plan to recoup funds from that third party travels through or over this bridge. Right. And so it's very important that that person also understands their rights, their obligations, because if they end up receiving the money from the auto insurance or workers' comp or whatever, they need to reimburse the plan. Likewise, if they release that third party, that bridge is burnt, and now that plan cannot go directly after that third party either. So A, a lot of legal details, uh -huh. and two, a lot of just knowledge, education, effort that needs to go in upfront to make sure everyone understands before the accident even happens. Yeah, good point. Good point. So what are some other types of examples other than obviously the motorcycle accident and auto accident, those types of things are the most common, but what are some other types of uh, situations where a third party liability uh, occurs? maybe in play. Sure. So, and I'm sure you've heard of, you know, the 80-20 rule or 90-10 mm -hmm. rule. 80%, um, 90% of the claims we handle, like you say, are motor vehicle accidents, work injuries, where you're going after the auto insurance or you're going after the workers' compensation. Exactly what you would think. Mm -hmm. But the few cases, that 20% or 10% of cases, mm -hmm. represent way more than that when it comes to actual plan expenditures. And unfortunately, it's those cases or claims that you wouldn't necessarily think of where that money is potentially out there for the plan. They just don't know to reach out and grab it. And that's another reason why you kind of need somebody who's aware of opportunities and able to look at the claims data at that next level and identify these types of situations like medical malpractice, okay. right? Uh, somebody is injured in the process of receiving some sort of medical care. Mm -hmm. One, the question then becomes, are you responsible to pay for the botched surgery? And then two, are you, as a health plan, responsible to pay to fix that mistake? Right. right? So it's a double down, right? right. Um, the second type of situation that people don't necessarily think of, and remember, time. Time plays a huge role in this. If I'm in a car accident, from the accident to the ER to the you know treatment to physical therapy to claim being filed to money being recovered, you're talking about maybe one, two years max, right? What happens if, I don't know, there's a groundskeeper at a school who's using weed killer every day, and 10, 20, 30 years later, he's diagnosed with lymphoma? Which is tied back to the original. Exactly. <laughs> and the court, you know, he ends up finding an attorney. They find some experts. And whether you believe it's true or not, a jury certainly thinks that's why. Right. So he ends up filing a claim against the, the manufacturer of this chemical. And he wins millions upon millions of dollars, right? And it's, it's headline news. 
How many benefit plans out there, once that came out, do you think were scrubbing their claims data for lymphoma claims right. from 20 years back to see if that person had overexposure to, to herbicides? Not many, right? right? And yet that money's out there. So that type of class actions, so product liability, right? Uh, these class actions, mesothelioma, right? Right. If I'm paying to treat somebody's lung cancer, and it turns out that they, their employer 30 years ago exposed them right, to asbestos, and now there's the potential as the plan paying for these injuries that I can jump in on that class action, get some money from those, uh, the manufacturer or the employer, back for the plan. How difficult is that for people to even track? I mean, how do they even know to, to have that? I mean, is that data even available 15, 20 years later? You know, I mean, can they even look back to the plan? Yeah, great question. So. It's really, it's a, it's a two-step process, right? Well, you know what? Three-step process. Right. I'll make it even more complicated. Okay. You know, increase my own personal value, right? right. Um, step one is you actually need to know what you're looking for, <laughs> right? So you need to be aware of these evolving opportunities. Two is you actually need to be able to take the current claims data, scrub it, review it, and determine is this person suffering from the injury or the condition? Are we paying to treat something that's related to third-party liability, and if so, we raise that red flag. The third part, what you're talking about, right. is now we take that person and investigate backwards. Yeah. Is that causation there? Right. You know, and if it's a car accident, easy, right? There's police reports. Uh, you, you check in with the auto insurance. You, you don't even these days. You don't even need to talk to the plan member. Right. You go straight to the insurance. Go straight to the police report and and coordinate with the carrier. You don't even need to bother the plan member. But if I'm asking somebody who's treating for lymphoma, hey, 30 years ago, were you using a lot of weed killer? Yeah. You know, that's something that's not necessarily as, as readily available. And so it requires a multi-level investigational team, which, frankly, most third-party administrators and carriers and employers in-house, they just don't have the resources. Right. If they want to invest in the number of people and technology and just time, it takes to determine how do I get that information, picking up the phone, sending out mail, texting, right? All these different ways of communicating with people, researching social media. Right. Somebody could be treating for lymphoma and they're posting all over Facebook, I know it was the weed killer I used 20 years ago. I basically bathed in that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, so that's, I think, again, in addition to all the legal complications that come with subrogation, also just the, the time and resource and effort it takes to, to review these cases. Yeah. Well, like I said, mo like you said, most plans wouldn't even health plans, if it's a self-insured health plan, you know, the vice president of finance or whatever is in charge of this thing, they have usually no clue that this money's even out there. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't have a clue that this even can be looked for backwards. Honestly, they, it's they, complicated. Yeah, it they, is. They wouldn't understand that. You know, I, I, I think about, so my grandfather you know, he used to be one of those guys, and, and he's long passed away, but, you know, he was very meaningful to me, and, and, and he used to just do everything himself. Uh -huh. And so for the longest time, I wanted to be like him and just do everything myself, the plumbing, the electrical. And it's only recently that I've realized that when he was my age, yeah. plumbing and electricity were a lot less complicated. There were fewer devices, fewer wires, you know, uh, fewer just – a toilet was a very simple device, right? Now, yeah. you know, it's got yeah. smart toilets and whatever. So the point <laughs> is that – 
you know, maybe once upon a time when things were a little bit simpler, you could do it yourself. But as things get more complicated or complex, you have to at some point appreciate you can't do it yourself. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a flood, electrocuted, or both. So when it comes to plumbing, electricity, and subrogation, those are things you should not try to do yourself. Right, absolutely. Well, I know you've kind of already talked about this, but I just want to summarize it for uh, the people that are listening. Why is it important that the claim to view process at the TPA or the carrier's office um, should include the participant certification in writing as to whether the illness or the injury was caused by the third party. Why is that uh, Why is that important? Sure. So, great question. Um, you know, for the longest time, TPAs, plans, attorneys, stop-loss carriers, right, the reinsurance for this right. plan, they want the plan member to sign something because it's like that binky, right? It's that right. little, you know, the lovey that you take to bed, your little blankie, right? It makes you feel safe at night because you can, you can hold it, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can see it. And so there's this attitude. I think people watch too much Law & Order yeah. that if I have something signed, it's the law of the land, right? I come down from the mountain with this tablet and signed by the plan member. The thing is, and this is what's really interesting, is when you get somebody to sign something, uh, it's a contract. Contracts are generally enforceable mm -hmm. under state law. Okay. Whereas when I'm enforcing the plan's rights under the plan document, in more cases than not, ERISA allows me to preempt state law and pursue this in federal court or federal law, which is actually more favorable for the plan than state law. So. Is that, Taking, true? is that true? Oh, yeah. In a state like California. Mm, oh, right certainly California. California. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good pick, right? There are, <laughs> there are some states where they're a little bit more uh, favorable to the plan, but there are some states, California being one of them, where if state law applies, you're automatically knocking a third off the top of the recovery mm -hmm. for the, the patient's attorney. Uh, if they can prove in any way that the amount of money they received is less than the damages they personally suffered, they get it all, you get nothing as the plan. So basically you're like last in line when right. it comes to being wow. reimbursed. <laughs> uh, so that's common fund and made whole respectively. And those are just a couple examples. So so these states, and, and not to mention the fact that if you're having to comply, let's say you're an employer and you have employees in multiple states, <laughs> and you're having to comply with different rules in every state, even if they're more or less the same as federal, it's still so much more complicated to have to know what each state requires yeah. than to just apply one blanket set of terms. So that's why, generally speaking, we want to enforce the plan's rights under federal law, ERISA. Okay. And so in, in some ways, getting that signed contract, it, it almost detracts from your rights. So what we're trying to do is not get the patient or the plan member to sign a separate agreement with a bunch of terms. That's a contract. Instead, what's very valuable is to get them to sign something or in some way acknowledge that they've read the plan mm -hmm. and they understand the terms of the plan. So this is now not a contract. This is confirmation that they understand the plan, which will be enforceable in federal court, okay. and that they've agreed to abide by those terms. And to my point about education and making sure the bridge is aware of its obligations and duties, that's it right there. That's what we were talking about, is making sure they understand. I, I actually think this is quite interesting because I used to run a third-party administrator many years ago, many, many years ago. My condolences. I know. Um, and what you're talking about, I mean, these things weren't even thought of when I was running a third-party administrator years ago. Obviously, I've been a consultant since 1995, but prior to that, for 12 years, I ran a third-party administrator. I can't ever remember getting into this kind of complexity that you're talking about today. So this this is actually very valuable to me as a consultant because, again, I thought I 
knew a lot because I used to run a TPA. I well, you do, you do. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I think that it's, it's a matter of understanding what you need to do but also why you need to do it. And, and I think what you happen – what happens is you generally see it comes with time and experience. And I know people will often think that time and experience are one and the same, right? Experience comes with time. But I think experience, it not only comes with time, right? But time is important in and of itself because you also need time for these things to, to percolate and, and eventually evolve, yeah. right? And that has nothing to do with experience. It just requires time to test these. And experience is more than just time. Experience is also volume. So when you're you're like my company, the FIA Group, and you're representing hundreds upon hundreds of TPAs and thousands of employers and millions of lives, and you're even representing all of the stop-loss carriers in the country, right? you learn from each other's experiences. So even though it's all happening at the exact same time, this is why time isn't really an element, it's the volume. Yeah. Because something happens to one TPA in California and we learn from that experience, we can now take that learning and apply it to everybody else. Well, it's almost like a brain trust or crowdsourcing. I'm glad that they have people like you guys to do these kind of things because I wouldn't want to have to deal with it anymore. Oh, you're welcome. You wouldn't have to do that. But, Jeez. <laughs> uh, what, is, what is the benefit to the health plan to have their TPA or their carrier partner uh, uh, be the experts uh, in the area of subrogation to monitor and scrub these claims in, um, for potential third-party recovery? I mean, we've kind of talked about that, but let's kind of summarize it. Sure, sure. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I think sometimes people, they, they initially the knee jerk is you want to be the jack of all trades, mm -hmm. right? And when you're marketing your value to, to an employer or to a broker as a TPA, you want to be able to say, oh, look at me, I'm the best of the best, I do everything. And maybe for a time that that had value. But I think we've entered a time, not just in our industry, but in general, where it's okay to tout the fact that you have friends in high places, that you work with the best of the best in each individual area, that you've taken all these resources and brought them together. And it's not that you're the one who's doing everything, but rather you've identified the best of the best. You've done the vetting right. and brought them in-house. Uh, I look, for instance, at, at some of the best automobiles on the market, right? They tout the fact that they've got a Bose audio system in the car, right? They don't say, oh, yeah, we built our own radio. If they did, you say, you're a car company, not a radio company. Get out of town. But, oh, you have a Bose sound system? Sweet. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's the same thing where if you're a TPA and you want to say, hey, next level up, right? This is luxury brand. We've brought in the best of the best for each individual element of the plan. Furthermore, that allows us as a TPA to focus our resources on what we do best, right? Communication, customer service, provider relations, claims processing and adjudication, mm -hmm. uh, and identifying and vetting the best partners, right? right? right. So that's what the team, focus your resources on what you do best and this just this burdensome stuff that's so legal and boring and annoying and frankly important find someone else who's more of a sucker who's going to waste their time dealing with it someone like you, you know and i i, I no think offense, you, know, yeah, like, you know it is what it is you guys handle it right and i i guess the last thing is when you're a tpa and you're talking to an employer or a broker and they're saying hey look we're deciding between self-funding and traditional insurance and in today's market between the exchanges and everything else right and talk of public options oh my gosh right right you need to prove that this is the best benefit for lowest cost and you've heard a penny saved is a penny earned right, right. Uh -huh. just because i'm charging you lower fees or you're getting better discounts or whatever is you're spending less up front it's no different 
than if I'm increasing how much I'm recovering mm -hmm. from third parties two, three, four, seven times what you're getting now. Yeah. So whether it's I'm saving you money up front or recovering money for you after the fact, it's all tied into that idea that with a plan, self-funded with my TPA, you're maximizing benefits and minimizing costs. Right, right. Well, once a claim's been confirmed that it's a possible third-party recovery claim, uh, what's the next step and when can that claim actually be paid? Sure. So usually uh, when you identify that there's potential third-party liability, um, it's actually it's interesting. Depending on the nature of the claim, that's going to determine what that next step is. So in my example before, if it's an auto insurance claim, somebody was in a car accident, it, you know, you go into a national database, you, you identify the claim, you, you put the adjuster on notice. Like I said, there's usually a police report, policy number, claim number. You get everybody on notice. It's, it's very standard, cut and dry. And it's so common, the auto insurance carrier is aware, uh, they're going to make you fight for every penny. Right. Uh, they, they're trained to try and stop you and make sure that you've done everything I mentioned before with the plan language and the, the, the notifications and the language, right? But if you've done everything you're supposed to do from that point on after you prove it, it's just standard. Notify the carrier, tell them how much they owe you, wait for the claim to settle, update the lien, which is the list of, of how many claims you've paid mm -hmm. that are related to the accident, get it to them, get the check, done. Oh, that right. all? Okay. That's it. it. So yeah. simple. No okay. problem. Easy peasy, okay. right? Right. Um, but when it's one of those claims that are a little bit off the beaten track, like a malpractice claim or a product liability or a class action, at that point, it's a little bit more of, of, of an investigation. It's a little bit cooler, right? It's one of those things yeah. where maybe you could see a, a well, documentary some, following you around. Some would, some would call it cooler. Some would call it not so cool, but that's okay. <laughs> I don't like those people that call this not cool. Uh, so, so at that point, what we're doing is we have to start investigating every source of information we can find to see, one, is this the right person? Two, are they suffering the right kind of complications or issues uh, that the claims data would suggest? Three, are they potentially a victim of that source of liability or is it just a coincidence? Uh, four, you know, with class actions in particular, usually there's an, an, an attorney, right, or a law firm that's managing the class action. And they're the ones you call in, you, you sign off to agree to have them represent you, and everybody gets $25 and a coupon in the mail, and that attorney gets $25 million, right? right. You, you've heard it always right. before. Right. You don't necessarily need to work with that attorney. You could waive having that attorney represent you and then identify your own counsel to kind of intercede and, and get involved on your behalf. Now, for most people, the damages don't warrant it. Mm -hmm. and, and again, just because you have your own attorney, it doesn't suddenly make the amount of total money available that much bigger, mm -hmm. right? So now you're probably paying more in fees yeah. and getting the same slice of the pie. Yeah. Um, but if you're a benefit plan, particularly if you have multiple people, all of whom are suffering from the same complication, it may warrant your own uh, representation. So all of this assessment before you file the first claim against the liable third party needs to be done. Okay, yeah. Well, how long does this whole process take? I mean, I'm assuming that could be years before settlement. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, once we're talking about uh, actually getting everybody on notice, at the end of the day, and I've mentioned a couple times now already, mm -hmm. that that plan participant is like the bridge. Right. I can't cross the bridge and get my share 
until that bridge decides to settle its claim as well. So if that plan participant wants to file a lawsuit against the third party because the settlement offers are inadequate, uh-huh. you're probably coming along for the ride. Now, there are certain circumstances where you can bypass the plan member and pursue a claim directly against the third party and maybe get that settled and out of the way. But more often than not, like I said, you're along for the ride. Uh, in small cases, auto insurance, a few months, right, from okay. beginning to end. But gosh, one of these bigger lawsuits, you're right, could take years. I have uh, product liability cases in my system right now that I've been working on. I've been with the company for 13 years. I have some claims that are that old. Wow. <laughs> you know, medical device claims. I mean, when you consider the amount of investigation that goes on, and, and frankly, the courts, I listen, I, I, I went to law school, I'm an attorney, I, I love the attorneys and the judges, and <laughs> my brothers and sisters, you know, it's bogged down, it's bogged down. You could wait months and months just to have a hearing to set up a calendar right. to set up the next hearing, right? right. So it's, it's just, it's so delayed. It's one of the reasons why you see so many claims settle, yeah. which in turn speeds up the process. Yeah. But yeah, 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 it's a huge spectrum. And like you'd imagine, the more money at stake, chances are the longer it's going to take. Right, for sure. Well, so the bottom line is, particularly for self-funded employers, um, obviously these all these important steps that the plan sponsor and uh, employer must take up front to protect their liability. Uh, what would you suggest that the priority steps are? Um, just as kind of to summarize from beginning to end, what's the most important thing that they need to do just in bullet point type form? Sure. First thing talk, I would you do. We talked about most of it throughout, but finish the podcast first. Don't hang up on us yet. But yeah. once once you're done listening to this amazing podcast, <laughs> stop the presses, check the plan documents. Okay. Make sure there's language in the plan document that supports the plan's right to mm-hmm. pursue subrogation. Right. It may not be the best language out there. Uh, frankly, if it's language that the FIA group hasn't written, I guarantee it's not the <laughs> best language. But anyway, um, you know, but at least make sure it's in there somewhere. Right. Because if it's not in the plan, you can't do it, period. Okay. Assuming it's in the plan, the next thing you have to ask is what are we doing currently to pursue third-party liability? Uh, If we're not doing anything but we have language in the plan, we're not enforcing the terms of the plan, which some people, I'm not saying that this is necessarily true, but if you're not enforcing the terms of the plan and you're not prudently managing plan assets, some might argue that's a breach of fiduciary duty. So we got to correct that. So one, the language is there. Two, you're actually doing something. Now that we've, you know, turned off the, the water and stopped the flood, next we got to call the plumber in to come in, get rid of the water, the backlog, and fix it so this is working better in the future. So that's when you bring in a professional. <clears throat> and what they'll do is, or what we'll do, is we'll actually look at past claims data and do a scrub. Now, time is money, and some cases may have settled, and there's nothing you could do about it. But again, looking back at claims data from the past to see lost opportunity is very important. Then fix the language, fix the process, get the claims scrubbing, get the claims identified, and start pursuing reimbursement moving forward. So those are sort of the steps in the order that, that we generally take it and, and that we think plans and, and TPA should should take. Um, but the last thing I would I would say is... Make yourself aware, not just of subrogation, but of cost containment in general. Mm -hmm. Because there are just, if this is shocking you of, you know, just how complicated and and how many things need to be done for a successful subrogation process, just think it's a couple pages in a 100-page document. Right. 
So think about just how many other opportunities there are. So that's sort of that last step is once subrogation is up and running, start thinking about other things you can do to, to increase your plant's performance as well. Okay, great. Well, this has been so helpful and so educational. Like I said, even for someone like me who's actually you know, ran a third-party administrator, um, most employers haven't had my experience, uh, plan sponsors. Uh, even for someone like me, I learned a lot. So hopefully this will help uh, employers, plan sponsors that are out there, uh, administrators that might be listening to make sure that they uh, dot their I's, cross their T's, and make sure that everything is in place so that if and when these things do happen, which they will, then they know how to go about getting them handled properly and getting their reimbursements back. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the, the one thing I, I want to make sure we, we make a, a point of is these benefit plans exist mm -hmm. to pay for the medical care of employees and their families. And money doesn't grow on trees. Yes, correct. And <laughs> people are going to keep getting sick, they're going to keep getting hurt, and we need to take care of these people. They're important to us. And if the money's not there, we're going to have to increase how much we're taking from these people as contributions. And so we're hurting them to help them. When an opportunity is out there mm -hmm. to get something from a large auto insurance carrier who can afford so much advertising, right? Right. A little something back from them to put back into that plan so that the next time someone has a premature birth or they're diagnosed with cancer or their kid falls down the stairs and breaks their leg and there's no one else out there to pay for it, that this money will be there to pay for those claims. And that's really important to me because ultimately that's what we're doing. And I got to tell you, when you're talking to a plan member and they just settled a claim with Geico or Allstate or whatever, right. and they got this money and they're thinking, oh, what am I going to spend it on? And you tell them, hey, look, I'm glad you won your case, but you know, a, a portion of that money belongs to your health plan. Can you cut me a check? Their knee-jerk reaction is going to be to jerk the knee and kick you in the – never right. mind. But right. you know what I mean. Right, yeah. And so it's so important that people, the employees, the people you're communicating with, understand what this is about and why you're doing it. And I think when they understand that it's not some big insurance company looking to line their pockets off of your tragedy, mm -hmm. but instead it's your colleagues and your friends and your coworkers and their families that are looking to take that money from some third party and bring it back to the pool to pay for people's medical expenses, that they get on board and they understand and that there's a reason for it. Yeah. And, and I think that ultimately is the most important thing we do is that awareness. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. So thank you for being part of my podcast. This was oh, very interesting. My pleasure. And like I said, I'm sure people will learn quite a bit from it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.